think I'm a fool? I didn't think so. I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like this before. I think you just said something. Think, 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 think. All right, we're here. And I know I keep promising you every week that we're going to get to some stuff with Lou, and it just hasn't happened yet. So you're stuck with me today as we go through all the fun stuff. And I have warned you for the last couple of weeks as we've gone through this that you're going to have to eventually speed up. Today is the day. But before we do that, hi, I'm Michael, if you don't remember, or you just forget, or you have no earthly idea what's going on, like me most of the days. And I've come to you this week to tell you that scalpels are better for tumors than chainsaws. And you may be thinking, I did not need to be told that. Yes, yes you did, because I need to be told that on a regular basis. Now, reminder of where we have been so that we know where we are going. We are simply going for a walk, a pleasant Lovely stroll as we meander through the scriptures and make our way through a through chapter by chapter, book by book, chunk by chunk, so that we can understand how to think through life, how to think through how scripture applies to this world, <coughs> excuse me, and make sense of this place as we go. This is going to matter. When Cameron and I get together on Thursdays and we talk about the issues of the world and the things that are going on in and day in and day out in the world, week in and week out, what we're attempting to do is deal with the world from a Christian perspective because the world doesn't have a Christian perspective. When Lou and I get together on Wednesdays and we're promising we're going to try to get together and I really want to make sure we can get together this week and life doesn't get in the way because we have some important stuff we want to go through and that connects to this. What we're trying to do is Understand Scripture, understand the doctrines of Scripture, and then think through events in the world on the basis of those doctrines of Scripture. So what we have been doing is seeing God as the creator, God as the preserver, God as the savior and the judge. This is all the things that build into our worldview that are contained in Scripture. That was the easy part. Now it gets more complicated. I told you we were going to take small chunks when we were dealing with primeval history, the beginnings of Scripture. Well, now as we get into patriarchal history, tis time for those big chunks thou hast been warned about. So what we're going to see today is the precision and long-suffering of God. And both of those things work together. His long-suffering is seen in his precision. His precision is seen in his long-suffering. So, if you have not done so at any point in your life, or you do not have a functional working knowledge, stop right now and go read, or at the very least skim the headings, of Genesis 13 through 25. Yes, we are taking a massive leap forward in your Bible because we need to see all of these things. So again, we will not read all of this because you're an adult, and if you're not an adult, then find an adult who can read to you. But because you're a responsible human being, and you can read and study for yourself. So I will pick out sections. We will kind of go through, but I want you to try to see the flow in the life of Abraham. So we're going to look at this big picture style. So when last we left... Abram, I say keep calling him Abraham, he's not technically Abraham yet. Abram had been promised the land of Canaan by God. He's going to get he's going to be a people, he's going to be a great nation, he's going to bless the world. Harkening back to the Proto-Evangelion of Genesis 3, there was a famine in the land, and Abram did such a wonderful job that he took off out of the land, went to Egypt to be provided for as opposed to waiting for God to provide for him. Was a liar was sort of a cheat. I don't know. You can maybe 
depends on how you view the uh, gain that Abraham gets down in Egypt, but he is preserved by God, protected by God, and sent back on his way. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife, and all that belonged with him. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and gold, and he went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been in at the beginning. Good call. Go back to where you know you're supposed to be. To the place of the altar which he had made there formerly, and Abram called in the name of the Lord, and now Lot, who went with Abraham, also had flocks and herds and tents, and the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now, fun thing, based on past experience with Abram, you have no reason to believe he's going to get this one right because he's had one little shot at this and he has messed it up. So Abram said to Lot, Please, let there be no strife between you and me nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right. If to the right, then I'll go to the left. This is a terrible idea by Abram. It's terrible. Who has this land been promised to? It's been promised to Abram. It's not been promised to Lot. Now Lot may be tagging along. Lot may be a great guy, but it's not promised a lot. It's pro- promised to Abram. You left the land once. Don't run the risk of leaving it again. Don't leave it to chance. Luckily, God is preserving and upholding both Lot and Abram. So Lot goes off towards Sodom and Gomorrah. What could go wrong? And Abram gets to settle down in the land, and he settles in by the Oaks of Mamre, which is in Hebron, and he builds another altar to the Lord. Fast forward. What happens when you leave that place of promise? Well, Lot goes down and settles and promptly gets abducted. (laughs) I mean, you get the War of the Kings of Chapter 14. Nobody can seem to rescue anybody. Everybody and their uncle is getting killed and slaughtered. So Abram has to go and rescue Lot. And you get a fun little spot here. After his return from the defeat of Kedorlamer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, professor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Now, Melchizedek or as I was once so famously told, Melchizedek, which sounds like something you should be able to order at an awesome burger joint. That's what we need. We need restaurants with Bible names. You know, you get the Melchizedek, and I don't even know what else you should be able to get there. I can't come up with one right now, but it's a good idea. Somebody make money on it, and I want royalties. So Melchizedek, king of Salem, that is Jerusalem. Name will get changed later on. He is king of Salem, and he is priest of God most high. Hmm... Who else would be a priest and a king, I wonder? Remember, the point of your Bible is always to point to Christ, which, by the way, is a fancy way of saying the point of your Bible is to point to God, both backwards and forwards. Melchizedek, as Hebrews will explain to you, is a figure. He is a prototype of the work that Christ will do, a priest without a lineage, a king with a kingdom that is going to be the city that God chooses for his temple. And so Christ is a priest, not by being a Levite, but by being the priest that God has ordained. 
So Melchizedek's a fun little dude here. Read the book of Hebrews. It will do you good. So Abram tithes to Melchizedek there. And the king of Sodom tries to give Abram some money. And Abram said to Abram, I'm sorry, Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God, most high possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal or anything that is yours for fear you would say, I have made Abram rich. Hey, we did learn something on our little jaunt down to Egypt. I don't need the people of this world to make me rich, I have God. Now, does Abram deserve this benefit of the doubt? No. Why not? Because he's a sinner under the wrath of God, save for the grace of God, just like Noah, just like Adam, just like Eve, just like Seth, just like everybody then and now. Save for the grace of God, we don't deserve anything. Now, <clears throat> that little note aside, our little narrative continues. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you, and your reward shall be very great. Now, you know this story. If you don't, read it. It will do you good. Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. I mean, how am I going to be a great nation and a blessing? I haven't got any kids, and I'm, I'm, I'm getting old. And if I'm getting old, you know what that means about Sarai, my wife over there? It means she's getting old too. That's usually how this works. As I get old, the people who are the same age as me or around the same age as me, they seem to get old also. And we all look at each other one day and go, man, you got old. And then you realize, oh, that means I got old too. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And God took him outside and said, Look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And Abram believed in the Lord, and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. This is your... Your faith verse. This is how Abraham, later on, Abraham, is the father of the faithful, as Romans explains. My brain does not want to put a chapter to it right now. I believe it's Romans 4. Read the book of Romans. It will do you good. That real that, that section of about 4 through uh, four through 7 there will do you immense good in understanding this. Abraham is the father not just of the ethnic nation of Israel. He is the father of the faithful nation of Israel. Uh, the end of Romans 2, the end of Galatians 3, those who are of faith are Abraham's descendants, heirs of the promise. What's the promise? The promise is a hearkening back. It is a promise to Christ. Think about the promise given to Abraham, or to Abram, rather. I mean, you're going to get a land? Why? Because it's been cursed. We had Eden, and it was taken because of sin. We were set aside from it. So we're looking for the restoration. This was the hope of Noah's family, that the Lord will give us rest from the toil of the ground that God has cursed. So we're longing for that. Where do we get that? In a redeemed earth. Uh, 2 Peter 3, Romans 8, I will make your nation, make you a great nation. People from every tribe, tongue, and language, or every tribe, tribe, tongue, and nation before the throne with palm branches in their hands. Was that Revelation 7 there? Those who bless you, you bless, and you will be a blessing. All the families of the earth will be blessed. All those who dwell, all those who stand against the wrath of God at the end of Revelation 6 and the beginning of Revelation 7. All of those will be a bless, will be blessed because Abram was faithful and because God is able to bring about the Messiah from his faithful people. All of these promises are a hearkening back. The nation is not about the nation. It is about the Messiah. Hence the reason why the Gentiles can be grafted in. The other children, not of this flock that Jesus speaks about in John 10. The grafting in of Romans 11. This is all prefigured and all part of the plan from the very beginning. This is what we mean when we say precision. See, 
<clears throat> we mess this up when we read our Bible and go, well, man, God's just doing an awesome job of picking up the pieces here. And we say that because, let's be honest, he's doing an awesome job of picking up the pieces. But there aren't pieces to pick up. They didn't break, and now God's trying to reassemble. This is all part of the plan. This is the precision of God. The careful statements, the precise and careful work that is constructing the nation so that the king will come, so that the priests will be there, so that the sacrifices will be ordained, so that all of this will occur, so that Christ will be taught, understood, and prefigured, so that when he comes, he will be understood, worshipped, and praised, and God will be all in all, 1 Corinthians 15. None of this is unusual. None of this is a shock. Again, God does not take the scalpel of heaven, or I'm sorry, God does not take the chainsaw of heaven and wield it upon the earth willy-nilly. He takes the scalpel and slices and dices and operates carefully. This is what you want your surgeon to do, right? Like, you don't want weird Al, sir. You don't want the weird Al surgeon from, uh, like, a surgeon video. If you haven't seen that, you'll enjoy it. Go look it up on YouTube. You know, where he pulls out the chains on, yeah, what are we doing? Oh, I've got to take out your tonsils. Not with that, you don't. That's messed up. We want the careful surgeon, the careful doctor, the one who knows what he's doing, knows what he's looking at, and is accomplishing what he has laid out to do. Just like you don't want the surgeon to be like, well, we'll open you up and see what's going on in there, and then we'll decide if anything needs to come out or be removed or anything like that. Well, you know, we'll figure it out. It'll be all right. Let me take a look. Come on, open up. Let's be getting there. No. Conversely, you want the surgeon that does what? That plans, prepares, knows what he's going to do, know how, knows how he's going to do it, and then operates according to that plan. Hence, you have God with the lamb slain before the foundation of the earth, calling from afar, planning and bringing it about, the one who knows who was and is and is to come. Now, you get this. The covenant is made at the end of the chapter. We realize Abram has no part in this covenant. He is a passive observer. God has sworn by himself, as Hebrews again will say, so that God will deliver what he has promised. So you immediately now get what? Abram, living in faith, trusting in God, realizing and seeing the beauty and the precision of the planning of God and going, I got this because you got this. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. No! No, 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 no. So Sarai said to Abram, Behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please, go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. Again I say, what could go wrong? What 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 on earth could go wrong? Now, and the answer is everything. Now, God is good to Abram. Ishmael, the son born to Abram and Hagar. Ishmael becomes a nation. He becomes the father of kings. But sin is also real and corrupting. And Ishmael's name is used as a curse because it is the tracing through of the Islamic world today back to the claim that they are the children of Abram, the children of Abraham, the right worshipers of the God of Genesis because they are the firstborn, the heirs of the promise, the descendants, and it's just a problem. That's why Paul goes to the trouble that he goes to to compare and contrast the two in, in um, oh, hold on, my brain didn't want to work. 
in Galatians, I believe it's Galatians 4, and to show the differences between Sarah and Hagar, the differences between Isaac and Ishmael, how the one is of the flesh and one is of the promise. The son of the flesh is never the recipient. It was always about the son of the promise. So this is why, though, we say long-suffering comes in with precision, because the precise God who is working and, uh, and accomplishing is also the one who is patiently dealing with us <clears throat> in the midst of us not deserving it, in the midst of us actively warring against him, and yet he still is accomplishing his plans. Now, notice something else. Abram is 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. 86. So we've seen Abram at 75 and at 86 hike. Realize this. I say this before and I'll say it again. I, I will have this argument and I will, I will die on this hill. This is the hill. I claim this land for Spain. I shall die upon this rock. The Bible is not a book full of miracles. I know we like to think that it is, but it's just not. Even in the life of Abram, in, I know I'm going to get stuck between Abram and Abraham. I'd be so happy when it switches to Abraham and we can just stay there. You get life from 75 years old to what, 175 when he dies? What do you get, like five conversations with God? Six? I mean, it's not like God's showing up every 20 minutes in Abraham's life. Yes, he's showing up like every other page in your Bible, but realize your pages of your Bible are skipping and hopping through years faster than a DeLorean, you know, on garbage. And if you don't get that Back to the Future reference, I just don't think we can be friends. Just I'm just saying. So same thing is going on here. This is part of that long-suffering. The faithful walking of God's people is just that, a faithful walking, not because God is showing up every 20 minutes to confirm everything that's going on in life, but because God is accomplishing, because we are walking in faith. See, that, one of these days I'm going to do with the, the good motivational posters. Like if you've lived in the um, American evangelical world for any length, and might, this might just be the Western evangelical world, those of you who are in the U.K., may have to you know fill me in on this same thing with Canada and Trinidad and Australia and, and and India you might have to tell me too I don't know we have that footprints in the sand motivational thing that what's well, not a motivational thing it's a comforting thing it's like I was walking along the seashore and I saw these two sand two, two footprints in the sand as I was walking with God and then during the darkest times of my life there was only one set of footprints and I asked God why did you abandon me during the hardest times of life and God told me child no I did not abandon you but I carried you <sighs> yes he carries us through but I don't think we realize why we're in the situations we're in. You know, oftentimes why life is the hardest? Because of us and because of sin. One of these says I'm going to do, I'm going to redo the footprints thing and be like, I was walking along with God and there were two sets of footprints. And I noticed during the hardest parts of my life, it looked like two sets of footprints and two gigantic snakes. And I asked God, why did the serpent attempt to devour me during those hard times? And he goes, my child, it wasn't that it was a serpent chasing you. It was where you tried to rebel in sin and I drug you through the sand to accomplish my purposes. See, that's most of Christian living. That's most of what ends up happening in your Old Testament. And that's most of what goes on today. It's not like we've fainted in, a, in our terror and we just can't go another step and so God carries us through. No, most of the time we're indulging in the desires of our flesh and we're turning away from the righteousness that God has provided in Christ and we are rebelling against the Holy Spirit and he grabs us by the back of the head and drags us through those tough times 
until we are back in right relationship with him, submitting and loving and following because he loves us and cares for us. And our loving, benevolent father will not allow us to wander off, but will hold us close and tight as he should. Now, fast forward. You get Genesis 17, and I'm, uh, no, I'm, I'm doing good. I'm checking my time here. When Abram was 99 years old, zoom, pow, zip, 13 years, the Lord appeared to Abraham and, Abram and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Don't ask me why I just tried to do the voice of God in, like, cheesy game show host voice, but I did, so... Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, here's this better, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you. See, I just, I don't have the Barry White voice, so I can't do it. You will be a father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but you shall be Abraham. Yay, that makes my life easier. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Now, what's going to be Abraham's sign in this? And his part of this? Well, it's going to be circumcision, a mark in the flesh to symbolize a mark upon the soul given by God. That's what it's supposed to be. Realize that you can be marked in the flesh without being marked in the soul. So this is the example. So everyone that Abraham is supposed to circumcise, Abraham is also supposed to disciple. He is supposed to be training and and teaching and building up in the way of the Lord. Hence the reason, walk before me and be blameless. Well, how do I do that? By trusting in God, believing in his promises, and walking faithfully in that direction until they are fulfilled. So, promises re-given, circumcision is given, Abraham circumcises, and we're off. Now you get to chapter 18. <clears throat> Again, talk about precision and long-suffering. Remember, we're now still waiting. There's this promise of a son from chapter 15. It's not going to be Eleazar. It's going to be the son born of you. The Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. And when he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite of him. Christophany, pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, and two angels. And he saw them were standing opposite. He saw them. He ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring you a piece of bread and you may refresh yourselves. After that, you may go since you have visited your servant. So they do. And they hang out. So they ask, Where's Sarah? And he said, there in the tent. And he said, well, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. I love this. Sarah listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. No kidding. Sarah laughed herself, saying, after I've become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, shall I indeed bear a child And when I am old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord at at I'm sorry, at the appointed time, I will return to you this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. But he said, no, but you did laugh. <laughs> I love Jesus like, yes, you did, but I didn't. Yes, you did. <laughs> By the way, that's where Isaac's name comes from, means he laughs. So for the rest of her days, Sarah has to be reminded that when God made her an amazing promise, she laughed at it. So they arise. They're going to go down to Sodom because the cry of Sodom is great, and they are sinful, 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 bad, 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 bad people. So the two angels go off, and God stands with Abraham. And we will fast forward here because Abraham negotiates a little bit. He's like, well, if there's 50 righteous, will you destroy the city? No, 40. 
No. Do I hear 30? No. Do I hear 10? Or you, you get the idea. They get down to 10. And the answer is, how many righteous people were there in Sodom? And the answer is, none. Lot is spared on behalf of Abraham. Yes, Lot, according to Peter, is Second uh, Peter, is a preacher of righteousness. But you can see when the time comes, when, when Lot is told, get out or else, notice how he vacillates. I'll let you guys read chapter 19 for yourselves. Sin has all sorts of good consequences. Lot was a preacher of righteousness, and he was troubled. But when push came to shove, the judgment that was coming, he wasn't sure he actually wanted it. He wasn't sure he wanted to leave. He kind of liked it. I can stay. It's a life for my family. And yes, I'm not reading you anything that's in there, but I am pointing out that why wouldn't Lot, knowing that this is a wicked people, knowing that his conscience is troubled, why not get out? Because sin makes you comfortable. Remember, God is precise and he is long-suffering. Christian, you too in your theology, your discipleship, and your teaching are to be precise, accurately handling, rightly dividing the word of truth, as Paul tells Timothy. But you too are also supposed to be long-suffering, not walking arm and arm in this world, but dealing with it walking through it and overcoming, not walking through and rejoicing in their iniquity, rejoicing in your participation in it. God is long-suffering. We are to be long-suffering. We are to be strangers in a strange land, 1 Peter 2. We are to be looking for our home, which is above, Colossians 3. We are to be walking differently, seeking to be freed from the body of death, Romans 7 and 8. You know, it's about sin having consequences. Lot's lack of discipleship and Lot's lack of faithful leaving when he was told to leave causes problems. You get the Moabites and the Ammonites who are going to be thorns in the side of Israel for years to come as well as part of the Messianic line. Always remember that the Moabites come out of the incestuous relationship between Lot's daughters and Lot as they get him plastered so they can sleep with him because they think the entire world has been destroyed. So fast forward. When we talk about long-suffering with God, Genesis 20. After everything that's happened, after what happened in Egypt, after what's gone on with the sign of circumcision, after seeing the smoke rising up from Sodom, after having God bless you and promise you and reiterate it, you get Abraham lying to Abimelech so that they won't kill him on behalf of Sarah. What is going on here? These people are messed up. So then you get to Genesis 21. Isaac is born. Just like God promised, just like Sarah didn't believe, you get the child of the promise. And then you get your sins coming back to bite you in the rear end as Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael and Isaac are struggling to manage to make this work. I can't imagine why this would be a problem. And again, what do you get here? You get that confirmation once again. Um, I've got to find my spot. The matter distressed... Uh, Sarah said to Abraham, "Drive out this maid and her son, for the maid of, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac." And the matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. But God said to Abraham, "Do not fear, do not be dis- I'm sorry, do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. For through Isaac your descendants shall be named." Remember, the promise is going to be through whom. Through the son of the promise, not the son of the flesh. Yes, they were both conceived in the flesh, but one was the awaited for son, the longed for son. 
One was the miraculous son, the dead womb of Sarah, brought to life by God, bringing forth the son of promise. Hmm, who does that sound like? This is a prefiguration of the work of Christ also. Again, the precision of God, the dead womb of Sarah because of age, the dead womb of Mary because of no sex. I mean, that's how that works. There is no more barren place than the womb of the virgin. The miraculous birth of Isaac, the miraculous birth of Christ, the promised and long-awaited son in Isaac, the promised and long-awaited son in Jesus. That's why at Christmas, Come thou long-expected Jesus, born to make thy people free. Ding, 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 ding. Precision, long-suffering, at work, here. Then you get to 22, the offering of Isaac. Again, Abraham, as Hebrews tells you, God can raise him from the dead if need be. Hmm, I wonder what that's possibly prefiguring and showing me. So you see what? You see the faith of Abraham. You see the joy of Abraham. You see the obedience and faith of Isaac as He's not fighting. He's going along willingly. And you see the provision of God because in his preciseness, he is providing according to every need. So Sarah dies. She's buried. That's 23. Fun negotiations. I mean, if you ever want to see just fun fun dealing in in an honor culture, Genesis 23 is your answer as Abraham negotiates for the field and and the burial plot in the cave. 24, you get the bride, Abraham not willing to partner with the people of the land because they are under a curse, back to Genesis 15, sends his servant to get a bride for Isaac from someplace else. Now, they're just as pagan as everybody else. I mean, Abraham was an idolater before God called him. Laban, who they're going to end up going back to with Joseph and with Isaac here, is an idolater. Doesn't matter. They're not the Canaanites. That's the point. The Canaanites are under the curse. Laban, yes, his family, if they do not repent and turn from their wicked ways, they will be under the curse, but they are not specifically under the curse right now. So you see God's choice of Rebecca, God's provision to the servant, Rebecca's willingness to go, and the promise and provision that God delivers in all of these things. And then finally, in chapter 25, you get the death of Abraham. Proving again what? The long-suffering and precision of God. Abraham has a nice, long life with lots of sons and daughters who come along later on and are part of this. He's 175 when he dies. We've been following Abraham for a century. It's been, if you think this through, it's it's been 75 years since Isaac was promised. It's been a long time since circumcision. It's been a long time since Ishmael. We just skipped a ton. It's been decades. And yet the plan hasn't changed. The promises have not gone away. The exact scalpeled cutting by God hasn't been forgotten. And just in case you've forgotten, Ishmael's descendants are named. Because God hasn't forgotten Ishmael either or his promises made to Abraham about Ishmael. And then you get the sons of Isaac. So you get 40 years old when Isaac's 40. uh, Rebecca finally has children. Two nations nations are in your womb. I'm sorry, did I skip too much? Yeah. So two peoples will be separated from body. The one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Remember that when we get to dealing with Esau and Jacob later on. Before they were born, Jacob was the son of the promise, not Esau. 
Esau doesn't have anything to sell. All he's doing is confirming what God has already promised. Sorry, and I'm, and I'm sorry. Isaac was 40 when he's married, and he's barren, and it's I want to say it's 20 years before they have kids, and I'm skimming through right now because I don't remember exactly where I saw that. But anyway, it is what it is. That ends us with our little section today. Again, what are we seeing? By the way, next week, read up on Isaac, and we'll probably get through a good chunk of Jacob too just to make sure we don't make ourselves completely crazy. God, precisely pointing to his Messiah, precisely promising, precisely providing, and demonstrating his patience and ability to deliver all of these things down through the years, over the decades, literally at this point, the centuries when you get all the way back to the garden. Excuse me. So what have we learned here today, children? God is long-suffering with us. It was true then. It's true now. Not a thing has changed. God will not suffer for eternity. That's Sodom and Gomorrah. There's a judgment still coming. Just in case you thought that the judgment of God was gone because he's not flooding anything anymore, Sodom and Gomorrah give you an example that God is still sovereign and still does not tolerate sin. And God is capable of doing two things at once. He's capable of bringing about Isaac while preserving Abraham. He's capable of blessing Ishmael while also preserving Isaac. He's capable of dealing with Sarah and with Hagar and Abimelech and Egypt and Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot and all of these things all at the same time and still precisely over the years accomplishing his purposes. So as you live and breathe and move in this world, remember that there are no accidents in the kingdom run by God. There are no mistakes in a universe ordained by God, but the scalpel cuts. It cuts where it's supposed to, it cuts what it's supposed to, and because of God's patience and timing, it cuts when it is supposed to. Never in our time, but always on his, and always for the benefit of his kingdom and the people therein. This is how you have to think in this world in order to understand what God is doing and why we're not going along with everything that they are about. So, questions, comments, complaints, info at practicaltheologyministries.com. Go to the website, practicaltheologyministries.com. Check out the resources. We will be back tomorrow, definitely, uh, no matter what happens, because there's some uh, current event things that I think are relatable to the Christian theology. So hopefully lose job and life do not get in the way again. I know the nerve of some people having a life preventing us from doing awesome theology for you people at home. But even if Lou can't make it, I will be back because there's stuff that we just need to go through now while it's still pertinent and still going on. I don't want to miss it by a couple of weeks. And so hopefully Lou will be with me. And then Cameron and I will be here Thursday to look at a couple of stories. They're probably a couple of weeks old. But that demonstrate the insanity of this world and why we have to think rightly. And hopefully we'll be able to look at them and be able to think rightly. So hope to see you then. Until we meet again, read your Bible. It'll do you good. Bye.